Welcome to the Northwestern Masters in the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton, and as always, I'll be joined by Adam Grossman. This week, Adam joins us in a bit different capacity, though. Recently, Adam was a guest on the Sports Equity Podcast, hosted by Brett Weisbrot. The Sports Equity Podcast brings special guests from teams, brands, and agencies to discuss the value that sports brings to business through current trends and best practices. As many of our listeners will know, Adam is a great guest to have on the Sports Equity Podcast because of all his work building his business, Block 6 Analytics. It's a really interesting conversation between Brett and Adam, and it's cool for our listeners to to have that mic turned the other way, as Adam is typically asking the questions, so it's an interesting view to hear Adam's take on his background and the building of his business and how it relates to sports. So everyone, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation between Brett and Adam. Our guests, like most of us, started playing sports at a young age, parlaying that into soccer at Northwestern University, then leaving college, taking on diverse opportunities and getting an MBA at NYU, to now being a teacher back at Northwestern, an author, and an industry-leading expert with a technology company called Block 6 Analytics. Today, we welcome Adam Grossman to the program. Great to be here. Awesome to have you. So when did you, when you left college, you know, at what point did you decide you wanted to go back for your MBA? Yeah, it took me a couple of years. I originally, when I left college, I was recruited by a professor at Northwestern to go to a, a human capital consulting firm. So helping companies with talent management and how do you maximize your people. Uh, from there, I moved to um, Huron Consulting Group, which is at the time, it does a lot of things, but I was focused on legal technology consulting. Um, so I think from that perspective, you know, I had a couple of years really focused on, we'll call it the not typically considered the non-revenue generating portions of businesses. And one of the things that I really did want to focus on is the more revenue side of business. Um, and never at that point, it hadn't even occurred to me that I could or should work in sports or have anything to do with sports. I did want to also solidify more of my uh, quantitative skill set. So that was something I definitely was focused on from a business school perspective. But I think it was really, you know, um, looking at core business challenges, understanding how companies make revenue and, and really developing my quantitative skill set um, that was really valuable and the, one of the reasons I targeted going into business school. That's great. And you know when you were in graduate school, I know you're focused more on the media and entertainment realm. you know what do you feel like you learned most? Um, you know what were you excited to learn most of? Yeah, I do think it was the uh, I had a NYU like um, other business schools, you can specialize in a a lot of different things in relatively few classes because business school is only two years. Um, so if you take three classes, you can get a specialization. So I had uh, media, entertainment, uh, finance, and strategy as my three specializations. Definitely was interested in the media entertainment side as I was in business school, uh, given NYU's location in New York and given its connections to the media and entertainment industry, I was becoming more familiar with sports and media and entertainment while I was at school. But the thing that has been the key to my success uh, in my career is the finance component. So NYU uh, has one of the most well-known corporate finance professors um, in business schools, uh, Aswat Damodaran. He's a world-renowned uh, financial uh, modeling and corporate finance expert. So uh, I was able to learn from uh, taking his class. And then there's several other professors that I, I learned from, but 
I think really solidifying my financial modeling and, and really um, solidifying my quantitative background to learn more about those skills and then being able to take them. And then in between my first and second year of business school, which we'll probably get into more detail, I did work for the uh, Washington Capitals and being able to take some of the things I was learning from uh, financial modeling, data science, um, and even from a technology perspective and apply those in the use cases at the Capitals. Um, even outside of what I was doing, what I ended up doing with Block 6 was really helpful and really uh, key to my success in my career. And what did that first role look like in DC? Yeah, so I was hired, um, the, uh, somebody who graduated before me um, at NYU. Um, he was a senior marketing, uh, in a senior marketing position at the Capitals. He was looking for an intern. Um, and so he, uh, it was a new program that they were starting with the Capitals. So I was focused on marketing and marketing challenges. Um, the, uh, from that, I was able to use um, particularly, um, you know, some basic data science techniques um, from what I was learning from business school and applying them to, uh, you know, various different marketing challenges that we were focused on at the Capitals. Um, I think from there, again, one of the reasons that I started the company is one of the challenges we were looking at is finding the first um, partner for the Scarlet Caps, which was the, at the time the first female affinity club in the NHL. Um, and that was the impetus, of the idea of, you know, target, how do you best target um, people to join a club? And then how do you find sponsors to a club is a core marketing challenge, but obviously finding and developing sponsorship opportunities is also a core sponsorship challenge. And from that, I learned kind of where this Delta was in the sponsorship space um, that became the foundation of my company. And is it safe to say at the time in DC that, you know, the business intelligence and the strategy departments were pretty lean and nimble? Yeah, I think, again, the, what, there's some irony in that with Moneyball and that Moneyball and sports, you know, obviously your audience is probably familiar with Moneyball, either having read the book or seen the movie, is that Moneyball was really applied to on-field analytics um, and the context of statistical analysis and how do you understand, you know, how do you understand your talent and how do, how do you understand and maximize your talent and how do you use that to better, you know, create a better product or maximize revenue streams is something that was definitely more familiar to the business side you know, in, biz in the business community. Um, so there's some irony that there was a lack of, um, you know, sophisticated data is kind of what you're just saying in terms of business intelligence or uh, intelligence, analytics, insights on the business side of sports when even at that time, so I was, you know, working for the Capitals uh, in the summer of 2009, even at that time, obviously Moneyball had already been pretty prevalent and teams, particularly baseball teams were staffing up in terms of adding um, uh, analytics insights and, you know, teams throughout, there's still, uh, um, you know, it's still teams are still ramping up and still trying to maximize their internal intelligence and performance. But now it's obviously much more common for business units, both on the team side and even not on the team side to have strategy, intelligence, analytics, data scientists, data engineers, um, CRM analysts. So that, that definitely was not common in 2009 and arguably on the business side, particularly if you're talking about teams, leagues, events, and athletes, it's still maybe not as common as some of us would like, but it's definitely changed substantially from 2009 to 2020. Yeah, if I remember 10 years ago, we were probably just starting to dig into macros in Excel. We didn't have third-party applications and, and, and companies calling on us to help us build out that area of the business, like the 10, 15-person teams that specialize in that now. Yeah, and even now, like, again, it depends on what you're talking about on-field or off-field, and even within the off-field component, probably the area – where data and analytics have really had the most impact is on ticket sales, particularly if you're talking about like the stub hubs or Seek Geeks and the secondary ticket markets of the world. You know, they're still relatively, 
um, it's definitely growing. And, you know, whether you're talking about digital marketing or sponsorship, um, you know, I think there, but, you know, the idea of, you know, internal teams still not being able to use some form of macros or, you know, understanding complex, you know, uh, or more complex mathematical analysis or data science techniques is definitely still a challenge. But uh, again, I think that gap is closing. That's great. So um, as you had these opportunities, you went through school and over time, I think it was around 2015, you know, you decided to go back and, and contribute to the master's of sports administration back at Northwestern. You know, how did that opportunity come about? Yeah, so I'm a co-author of a book called The Sports Strategist, Developing Leaders for a High-Performance Industry. Um, I, my co-authors were um, one who still is a director of communi- communication, or sorry, a professor at the Communication Studies Department um, at Northwestern University. And then my other was my a good friend who had his PhD from Northwestern at the time was a director of marketing at ESPN and subsequently moved to the MIT Sloan, uh, uh, Sloan Sports program where he's a professor and a lecturer there. Um, they, my co-author helped build the master's of sports. Uh, my co-author, who was a professor of communication studies at Northwestern, helped to build the master's of sports administration program at Northwestern because those programs, again, while increasingly common now, were not common uh, at the time. They were specifically looking for somebody who had um, some, some amount of experience in the space from a professional context, uh, but also had the ability to have done you know, some amount of research, had a graduate degree, and really was operating at this intersection of you know, sports, data, technology, analytics, uh, and insight generation uh, for the classes that uh, there was a specific class that they were developing in the predictive analytics called uh, sports management analytics, was taught, which was to talk about the concepts that you talked about from a business intelligence perspective and the predictive analytics side. But there also was a class called research methods and quantitative analysis, which is a base class in the program, which is basically how do you apply data and numbers to the business of sports. Um, so they were looking professor for that. And, you know, the combination of factors, having just written the book, having the graduate degree operating in this, you know, having launched the company operating in this space, um, that all kind of worked together. So um, the company hadn't really fully taken off. So, it's, you know, I, I was more operating as a consultant at that time, but um, with some external help, uh, we didn't really fully launch until 2016. But um, the, the fact that I had written the book and had gotten it, you know, gained some amount of traction, even as kind of a smaller shop, um, that was key to the success. And what did, what have you enjoyed most about giving back to your alma mater? Yeah, I, I do think it is the interactions with the students. You know, again, obviously students, um, even since I've been teaching, have changed in terms of their understanding of these concepts. Um, I think that people are increasingly given the, the rapid nature of development of these concepts and people's just increasing familiarity, particularly from an undergraduate perspective. Um, but I do think it's, you know, the interaction of the students, the idea that students can learn and develop and pursue careers in sports. Again, I, all the students in the program or typically the students are um, typically, I think, between ages like 22 and 25 in our program, at least when they're getting started, um, or that's probably the median range. And, you know, I did again, I never even occurred to me to work in sports at that age. So the fact that all those students are further ahead in their thinking, at least than I was, um, you know, it's definitely interesting. And then being able to say like, here are some concepts, here's some ideas, here's some ways to differentiate yourself. Here's some things maybe you hadn't thought about and how they apply to the sports industry. You know, really understanding here's how sports operates as a business. Here are the revenue streams. 
here's how you can define revenue. Here's how you can look at sponsorship uh, analytics. Here's how you can look at all these different topics in the sports industries, you know, based on the revenue streams. Here's how you can think about, um, pol- you know, politics, public policy, uh, ethics, and how that does apply to the business of sports in ways maybe you hadn't thought about before. So I think it's the idea of, you know, seeing students interact with concepts they hadn't really thought about or seen for- before and start to internalize them and start to use them as they build their careers and then seeing them achieve success in the sports industry in a variety of different contexts um, has been pretty gratifying. Right. So, you, you know, you develop the course on entrepreneurship and sports, you co-develop sports management analytics. You know, how has this helped you evolve in teaching your network nowadays? Yeah, I think one of the things that we, and for my company specifically, um, one of the things that we have to deal with on a daily basis, and this is something you and I have talked about um, in, a, in another context, is, you know, our, the concepts and things we've developed are, um, you know, somewhat, somewhat, if not, you know, definitely complicated. And the idea of, you know, taking complex concepts when you're talking about machine learning or, you know, data science or analytics and saying this is how they work for people in the industry, this is how they um you know, this is how they can apply. This is how it applies to your business. This is how you maximize revenues. You know, this is how you take something that looks very complex and this is how it can be used in your day-to-day uh, operations as a business to, you know, either um, better understand your, your sponsors, better understand your audience, better understand influencers, better understand what people are saying, better understand how uh, value is being created. All of that can work together, but it does require people to really understand, engage, and be able to use what you're talking about. So, you know, you can have good products, good concepts, good, you know, good things, um, but it doesn't really, it's not really helpful unless you can um, communicate those concepts effectively. And we're not perfect. And I, you know, I constantly am evolving and getting better, but um, I think teaching, one clear thing about teaching is, you know, you you have an audience that is starting from a pretty, you know, uh, that's why they're in the program is to learn, right? So you have to start from somebody who, and talking to people who don't necessarily understand, um, you know, there's a gap between obviously what you know and what they know, and that's why they're in the program. And I think that's a helpful to remember when you're in a business context, right? There's definitely a gap between what you know about your products, your offerings, and why uh, something you're doing is valuable versus what the customer knows. And being able to communicate about that effectively is really critical. I was saying then there's another gap between what I know and how I understand data to how you understand and work with data, right? Yeah. You have different gaps you have to work with depending on who you're talking to. And, you know, sometimes you have to dumb it down or sometimes, you know, there's basic. Uh, people talk about dumbing it down. And again, I, I think, you know, that's, you know, I know it's like a parlance to use. I don't think it's necessarily dumbing it down, right? I mean, it's like, you're not dumb. People we're talking to aren't dumb. It's not that it's not bad. It's just, it's novel, right? It's new to you or some amount of it's new to people. And just because it's new doesn't mean that you have, you just, you know, you have to communicate in a language that people understand because, Again, this is just something that's, again, uh, it's something that's a challenge, right? It's like, I, I do genuinely believe that our products can help our customers maximize revenue generation, which is obviously a key component to any business, right? You could, If we can help our customers make more money and do it in ways that are robust, substantial, differentiated, we should be able to succeed uh, as a company. And that's, you know, again, it's people are not stupid. People are not dumb. People are just, you know, there's some amount of, um you know, you can even see in the in, a, in the current political environment where people were really excited, so to speak, or if you looked at like CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, you know, people were like, wow, you're doing math on television about polling. Well, that's really complicated. I would never do that. I think there's just some 
perception that doing math or doing, you know, math in any form in some kind of, it, it can be difficult. And then when you're talking about, well, how do machines operate or how did you come up with this model or how did you come up with these concepts? There's just like a fear of the, to lack of a better term, and this is a little bit of hyperbolic, but like the fear of the unknown. It's like, we haven't done math or we haven't looked at complex, you know, we haven't looked at these concepts before. I don't remember, you know, I haven't taken a math class since high school or college. And, you know, that seems like this is very complicated. And it just, you know, some of it is very complicated. Some of it is complicated. Some of it's not that complicated. And some of it's just, you know, here's ways where we can add value. And I think that's what people want to know is how can you add value to my business, to my life, to my career? How is this valuable to me? And, you know, again, I think that's what students are looking for too, right? How is this valuable to my life, my career, as I'm trying to achieve my goals? And I think having that, again, I'm not perfect by any means. And, you know, I've definitely been a constant, it's a constant um, evolution to get better at being empathetic about, you know, where are people's backgrounds, where do they come from, what have they learned, and how can this be helpful? It's not, it's not something that's easy to do, and it's not something in any context, but particularly in a context where you're talking about what you're talking, what we're talking about in this uh, conversation. Yeah, and I think the big thing for me, I mean, as we, you know, you talk to clients, I talk to clients, we talk to yeah. them. I think the biggest thing for me is to be empty head and be willing to learn, right? And know mm-hmm. that you might tell me where I have a gap. I might not have a gap there, but at least, you know, if I'm having a conversation with a client, I have to understand what I'm trying to accomplish. And, you know, there's certain software and there's certain data and there's certain variables that go into play to be able to, you know, at least hypothesize situations, if not answer the question. That's exactly right. And I think that's also something like being willing to learn and listen is, it's, I think it's much more difficult than people think it is. And myself included, I think it's not, it's not an easy concept to just let people kind of articulate what they need to articulate. And what's, there's some irony there in that, and I'm even doing it right now. And the fact that sales data says that the most effective salespeople talk less than 50% of the time in conversations, right? Because that one of the most effective things you can do from a sales process is let people talk. For a variety of reasons, but one is to learn what they actually are looking for and learn what their needs are, and then being able to shape conversation based off their needs. And if you if you're fortunate, not you can't always do this, but if you're fortunate enough and to be in a conversation where you know somebody is willing to communicate what they want to communicate, it really can help shape the conversation in, in substantial ways that are good for people like us who are trying to sell kind of sell products, and it's good for the customer to really be heard and really be understood. It's funny you say that because being 20 years in the business, I think about 15 years in, I heard the saying, you have two ears and one mouth, right? So I think it's <laughs> about three quarters into my professional career right now to yeah. follow that and actually abide by it. Um, you know, so around that same time, you know, five years ago when you wrote that book, you know, how did it feel, um, you know, to be published and to be in periodicals like MIT and Forbes and Oxford University? Yeah, so the book was published by Oxford University Press. Um, again, that's something I never would have expected. And again, that, that that's mostly because of my co-authors. My co-authors had written a book um, called The Elusive Fan, um, which had been published by McGraw-Hill. Um, and my one of my co-authors, um, Irv Rain, he had published, I think it was 12 books before that. So it's oh, wow. it, it was great to be published by Oxford University Press. I, I mean, I, that would not have occurred most likely on my own. But um, yeah, I think it's... I mean, again, like if you had told me by the time I graduated business school that I would have, or before I went to business school, that I would have written a book, started a company, um, been published in, you know, Forbes and Sports Illustrated and um, Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, been on CNN. I, you know, I think I would have been, you know, they would have been very happy with that outcome. I think it's part of the thing we're talking about entrepreneurship and learning is, 
you know, there's such a day-to-day grind when it comes to entrepreneurship um, in terms of all the things you have to deal with that sometimes you have to do conversations like this and remember all the stuff that you've actually accomplished um, to, to really say, like, it's really, you know, it's really difficult, but when you do actually achieve some amount of success, it's, it's actually quite, um, yeah, it's quite substantial, right? It's really, you, it, you can look back and say like, here are some of the things that I've done. Here's some of the things that I built. But the other thing is, right. I mean, at a certain point, the only reason you're in those positions, and this is obviously a cliche in every kind of sports movie or trope or report or media is like, we, well, we had to thank our teams or, for doing that, but that is literally true. I mean, like if I, there's a lot of things I can't do and there's a lot of way, the reasons I'm in these positions because, you know, you have a team in place and that's one of the things you have to focus on, right? Is how do you find team members who can do things that you can't do or can't do well, or, um, you know, don't have the, either the, the capability, the means, the time or the energy to do. And I, you know, I wouldn't be in the positions that I'm in. I wouldn't have spoken at MIT at the Sloan Sports Conference on computer vision and how you can use computer vision technology to do logo exposure analysis. Or we wouldn't be in the positions where we have clients like, you know, uh, cities or Pepsi's of the world. Um, if it weren't for a team that has to, you know, um, that works with these clients on a day-to-day basis to understand their needs and deliver our product offerings in, in the ways that can maximize value. Um, it just wouldn't be in that position. So, you know, again, there's a lot of, uh, particularly when you're talking about entrepreneurship, there's the, um, there's somewhat of a, um, not as much in sports, but in other industries, this cult of the founder where the founders are, you know, thought of as people who come up with ideas, but, um, and they're the ones who have, you know, these, um, it's just like, there's a, there's a, your listeners can all listen and find all these books. There was a book recently about the founder of Airbnb, there's been a book about the founder of Uber. There's been a book about a founder of Theranos. Um, so those are all books you got. You can take a look at to learn more about this. And then if you look at popular financial press, whether it's Crunchbase or uh, Pitch uh, Pitchbook or TechCrunch, um, you can look and see all. And even in, in more mainstream publications like Wall Street Journal or New York Times or, or Washington Post, you can see some of these articles. But the main thing is, right? I mean, you you have to really understand your limits as an entrepreneur. You have to understand what you're good at. Um, and again, it's, I'm not certainly not perfect at that. I'm certainly, it's a struggle to, you know, and this is kind of in any job role. I mean, in any job role, you have to know what you're good at and know what you're not as good at and hopefully find people who can help accentuate what you're not good at. And so you can focus on the things that you're really strong at because consistently that's what people who excel, they, they're able to focus on the things that they're really good at. And if you can find people who can build out your team around it, but to your point, like, yes, it is great to have been published in, in and it's great to have a book published. It's great that I've been able to publish book chapters and other books. It's been great that, um, you know, I've been in all these different places. It's great that I've been able to speak on on a variety of panels. It's great that I became a professor at at, at a relatively young age. Um, And yeah, it's, it's definitely, there's definitely a lot of accomplishments there, but it's, you know, and it's good to look back on those accomplishments, particularly when you're dealing with the day-to-day um, grind, like I mentioned before. Yeah. And I think for me too, replacing yourself is really important. So for me, it's mentoring salespeople, you know, for you, it's mentoring the next generation of people in your field, right? Yeah. So it's exciting to see the different ways they're learning now that we didn't have the ability to learn maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Exactly. Um, so were you always entrepreneurial? No, definitely not. Again, I before I went to business school, um, I never, again, it would never have occurred to me that I would have started my own company. That was not even a, in my consideration prior to business school. Uh, it, while I was in business school, so um, obviously in the timing now, there's you know a, a significant economic impact and downturn happening from the coronavirus. Um, when I went to business school, uh, I started in the fall of 2008. So uh, as context for some of your listeners who may know this, the 
uh, the people the year above me, a lot of them had internships and job offers at Lehman Brothers um, at the beginning of that year. Um, and then obviously Lehman Brothers went bankrupt uh, while we were getting ramped up at business school, and I believe in October of 2008. So um, I, I was in the context of, um, it was in that context that I thought about starting a club at NYU. NYU starting a club in the business school is like starting your own business. It literally takes over a year to start a club at NYU in the business school, and you have to go through all these processes. And, um, and that's in part because they actually do provide significant budgets for um, clubs at the school. So I started the uh, Government and Business Association, um, got it off the ground, led some, uh, we were able to have some cool uh, opportunities, particularly uh, what Stern calls a trek, but a trip to Washington, D.C., where we were able to meet with a bunch of senior government officials. Um, which was which was just interesting. I thought I really liked that experience. And then, you know, um, I kind of did have the, I guess, somewhat stereotypical um, creation story. Um, so I was up at like two or three in the morning and just thought about this. I was just thinking about, so the reason I started the company is originally I brought it to an, as an idea for uh, the capitals to say, you know, this is something you guys should really look into or really have. And the CMO at the time said, well, why don't you do it for us? as a, you know, kind of like as a school project. Um, so I did uh, in between uh, when I came back to business school for my second year, one of the classes in my media and entertainment specialization was um, building, uh, you know, coming up with some ideas to build uh, basically a web-based solution um, that would integrate uh, potentially financial modeling concepts in part, but more just kind of like a web-based solution where people could see sponsorship opportunities. Um, and I thought, it, you know, while I was thinking about it, um, I thought that Capitals had this challenge. I thought other sports teams would have this challenge. So from that, I decided to launch the business. And then, um, so I was launching, I was doing entrepreneurial stuff while I was in business school. Um, and that was really the catalyst for me um, becoming an entrepreneur. Again, I would never have thought about doing it. And I was even in business school, I was relatively late in the game. Some of the classes, I don't have an entrepreneurship specialization because it didn't even occur to me until probably like my second year of business school that that was something I would want to do or was interested in. Um, so it, that was, it was a combination of, you know, starting the business, uh, starting the club at NYU, having a, what I thought was a good idea. Um, also, the you know, obviously the economic environment was made it more likely that um, there wasn't, there wasn't what's called an opportunity cost, right? There were, in my, uh, there just were fewer jobs in traditional MBA uh, pass, and which are typically investment banking, consulting, and marketing, um, than there typically was when we graduated. So, you know, I, I thought there was a relatively, it's never a no risk situation starting your own company, but it was a relatively low risk situation to start the company, or as low risk as those situations should get, I should say. Right. Um, so in the last five years, you've continued to build Block 6 Analytics. You know, can you tell us, you know, for those that don't know, you know, what your company is and, and what you offer? Yeah. So we're um, the core of our business is that we're a cross-channel valuation of sponsorship in ways that can maximize revenue growth. So if you think of sponsorship, if your listeners, um, you know, think of sponsorship, there's a lot of different ways that sponsorships can be activated. So probably most commonly there's, you know, naming rights sponsorships. Um, so, um, you know, the names of venues and all that it entails, um, there's been a lot of deals there. There's, you know, Jersey apparel sponsorships, there's in-venue signage, there's social media content or digital media content. There's, um, you know, ex experiential uh, marketing, there's um, corporate hospitality. So getting suites at games or having, you know, um, kind of unique exper corporate experiences that are based around sports teams. There's leveraging intellectual property. So, 
Um, if you think of like a Bud Light with beer with your team on it, where you see the, the cans with the team's logos on it, um, we want to be able to say, so the challenge, the fundamental challenge or in sponsorship and, and marketing and advertising more generally is there's all these different, what's either integrated marketing or cross-channel marketing, but there's all, we just articulated basically six, seven different types of sponsorships. So like, how do you understand the value of that sponsorship? And there's a famous saying in advertising in general, um, it's, you know, 50% of my advertising doesn't work. I don't know what 50% that is. Um, so we've applied, um, so we want to tell our clients, whether that's on the, the team league event athlete side, which is called the sell side, they're the ones who are selling the sponsorship or the uh, companies and the agencies that work with those companies, uh, which is the buy side, um, which are the people who are actually buying the sponsorship, what 50% of the sponsorship in this context is working and what's not working and why. And essentially the key insight that I had originally is sponsorships are considered to contain assets. In financial modeling, the core or one core way of doing financial modeling is using an asset-based asset approach, uh, which is commonly called like a discounted cash flow model. But essentially it is how do assets generate profits for a business? As a business, you're relatively agnostic on what the asset does, but you want to see how does this asset impact your business? And from that, you can determine the value of the company um, and the, the, determine the value of the assets and the value of that company. Uh, there has been no type of that approach that was ever applied to sponsorship as far as we could tell, and still really not uh, other than the way that we're doing it. So what we're basically saying, we're not focused on what an asset is. We focus on what an asset does and how it impacts a company's specific revenue and brand goals. So if you break down sponsorship across all those different activations into how it impacts uh, businesses in a company specific way, then you can understand value. You can find the opportunities that, you know, on both sides, on both the buy side and sell sides that maximize revenue. And you can understand and communicate exactly how and why value is being created. Uh, in order to do that effectively, in addition to building a uh, sponsorship model called our corporate asset valuation model, um, we also um, have developed machine learning technology. I mentioned a little bit, uh, one's called computer vision, which is basically teaching a computer how to see so it can look in video images and pictures and identify logos um, in a variety of different contexts. Um, another thing that we developed is um, social media listening and audience analysis uh, around a concept called natural language processing, which is essentially teaching a machine how to read so it can read posts and understand the sentiment, the engagement. And then from that, we created our own way of determining audience, uh, doing audience profile analysis as well. Um, so there's more, yeah, there's a lot there and there's also more to it, but Hopefully that's a, a good high level description. Yeah, for sure. And why the name Block Six? Yeah, so uh, in, in I started the company while I was in business school. Uh, the way that NYU uh, breaks down, it breaks down uh, its students into cohorts. Um, and we were all, which are called blocks. Uh, originally I was starting it with two other people from business school. We were all in Block Six and it kind of rhymed with analytics. So that's why we, and you know, to sort of have this association with NYU, but not really. Um, they actually quickly, it was a mutual agreement that their skill set was not necessarily that applicable to what we were going to build uh, at Block 6. So they left. I kept the name. I always thought I would change it. Um, but so far, we haven't found anything that's been uh, significantly better. So that, that's where Block 6 comes from. That's awesome. And what have you enjoyed most about growing this company so far? Yeah, I think mean, there's a lot. But, uh, you know, I think one of the, at the end of the day, when you're talking about entrepreneurship, you know, we were talking about a little, a little bit before we came on. Um, um, onto the podcast, but 
the, you know, again, it's like you came up with an idea that, you know, it didn't exist beforehand and now it does, right? It's like, you're the one who's trying to, you know, at the end of the day, if you're the entrepreneur, you know, you have to be, you know, you definitely need a team. You definitely need a team to help grow the business, but you know, you're the one who's the, at times the engine and making sure that, you know, it came from an idea that you or multiple people in your group, if you have multiple founders thought of, and for me, you know, the idea of conceiving the idea, building it up, accomplishing the things that you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, it does come from like, this is something that did not exist and now it does exist. And one of the things I think that is a strength of mine and also a weakness, I would say, is literally being very creative, like coming up with new ideas um, and generating new ideas. Um, you know, and again, I think you can tell from the way I was describing the business that we have a lot of different things that we're doing. And that's because, you know, we can kind of look at, or I can kind of look at things and say, why can't we do something like this? Or why can't we tackle this challenge? And, you know, sometimes that's, you know, a lot of times that's good. Sometimes that's not so good. But I think what's really been, I think the most beneficial and the most thing, I, it is something where it's, I thought of it, you know, I conceived the idea. I was able to work again with a lot of great people, both from my team, but also investors and other external stakeholders like my co-authors in the book. Um, but all of that is, you know, again, it's deriving something and building something. And I think from nothing, but also that does have a substantive impact on our, our business and our clients. I think, you know, creating a, a, at least the foundations of an engine to understand sponsorship, understand valuation, help companies really maximize revenue growth you know, you conceive something and then it also can have a substantial impact on, on, on large scale companies, you know, kind of like, you know, again, to the points of the cities and um, the, the Pepsi's of the world, but also, you know, we worked with several NFL teams, MLB teams, NHL teams, NFL teams. And I, you know, to be honest, I, obviously I wouldn't be talking to you if, if I hadn't started this company. Right. So it has opened a lot of opportunities, but I think, you know, I, I think having the validation that something you could conceive that can exist and can impact uh, companies and people in a significant ways and open up all these other opportunities has been definitely very gratifying. That's great. And what would you say is the most creative activation you've been tasked with to assist on? That's a good question. Uh, I guess I haven't totally thought about that before. Uh, I, I've seen some creative activations. I'm not sure necessarily, you know, and there's somewhat of a limit I can say in terms of our NDAs and stuff. Um, but uh, there's, one of the things that we talked about um, in the book is that the, you know, the, the Washington, what is now the Washington football team um, started its own um, wine. It's called, you know, the Burgundy and gold. I think it's called at the time it was the, the Burgundy wine. Um, and I think they still have it based off the, some of the anniversary that they talked about. I can't remember if we talked about it in the book or I just sort of post about it, but um, I think the idea of, um, you know, again, I think teams have found very creative ways to leverage whether it's IP or analysis, um, one of the other things that I talked about recently in a, in a post in a kind of a similar vein is that Cinnamon Toast Crunch uh, put um, some Cinnamon Toast Crunch cereal logos in the stands of Twins and Marlins games. And there's a way they put them behind in the left field stands. So not only is it interesting to, you know, again, COVID has accelerated a lot of interesting ideas, but the idea of one of the reasons I think that they put those, those or one of the reasons they could have put those um cinnamon toast crunched in the left field stands is actually a combination of on-field analytics and off-field analytics. On the on-field perspective is that baseball has moved towards a home run strikeouts and walks leagues uh, league. And most batters in baseball are right-handed and most home runs go to left field. So the reason to put it in the left field bleachers is that is the most exciting play in baseball is when there's a home run and the most likely place you're going to hit a home run is in left field. So if you combine like, well, that's, 
kind of novel money ball type of analysis. And then if you're saying from a social media perspective, where can I generate the most engagement, the most likes, the most, uh, you know, the likelihood to create interactivity with and engage with fans and customers, you know, it's this combination of all these different factors that I think are really interesting. And again, we don't, we're not, we didn't do any um, analysis beyond what I did in the, in the blog post, but I just think it's really interesting that there's, you know, these opportunities to, you know, kind of leverage all the different things that we've talked about during this conversation and really activate that. Um, there's definitely been a lot of interesting ideas that are floating around from like, a, you're talking about pure technology, whether that's virtual reality, augmented reality, um, particularly there's ways that are really interesting there. Um, and then with, um, I, I would say if, if you want to look for something, and again, not as obviously to plug my own stuff, but um, I do send out a blog post every week and there's some cool ones that we've identified, whether it's with the Savannah bananas or, but even something like, you know, where you wouldn't think is as interesting is um, the Allegiant naming right deal um, for the, uh, the the Las Vegas Raiders stadium actually, I think has a lot more interesting components to it, particularly from a naming rights deal perspective, you know, and the idea of how this, how a naming rights deal applies to the business of Allegiant, I think in unique ways for that, again, particularly pre-COVID, but even um, during COVID and after COVID, um, the idea of um, why Allegiant specifically is a good fit for the Las Vegas Raiders stadium. I think that's also been very interesting as well. Right. And it's not just about being based in Vegas, right? There's, you know, there's a lot of other assets and things that go into that partnership than just being located down the road. Yeah. It's one of the things is that's exactly right. It's like, that seems like the easiest thing. Well, we're located down the road. That's why we wanted, you know, and it's a big deal and we can get a lot of name recognition, but actually one of the ways that Allegiant has differentiated itself is one by focusing on cities that are um, not necessarily always the biggest cities, but also cities that are NFL stadiums in, or where NFL stadiums exist. Um, Cincinnati being a good example, which again is a big city, but it's not necessarily as big as, um, Los Angeles or New York, which, you know, again, obviously people associate, but the other thing that Allegiant is really focused on is, is having its, you know, going from, we'll call it low cost or lower cost hubs, uh, but also creating unique experiences. And the Allegiant Stadium, a big component of that is creating unique experiences, particularly in Las Vegas that parlayed their naming rights deal with um, the, the Raiders to, you know, create experiences both on game day and outside of game day. And again, using that, that was a key component, not only of their uh, growing component of their revenue, but a significant portion of the profits that Allegiant was generating. So looking at all of these different components, I think that's what's really been interesting is you can see how deals come together in ways that, excuse me, are not necessarily ways you would expect or, or um, in ways that, you know, really do, like I said, gener can more directly impact businesses if you take this company specific approach and apply that lens to analyzing some of these deals. That's great. And who's an ideal client for you? Yeah, again, I, I, all of our clients are ideal clients. We'll put it that way. But <laughs> uh, we've seen a, a growing portion of our business move more towards the buy side. Um, you know, if you're talking about these large companies and the agencies that work with these large companies, um, because they're and because they're ultimately the ones um, you know spending the money, um, there's you know there's potentially a more of an interest in looking at what we're focused on, which is fair market asset valuation of sponsorship and how you know, in company specific ways that drives value. Or if you're talking about company specific ways, working for those companies can be really helpful. So we've, we've seen an uptick in our um, buy side business, particularly when you're talking about companies and agencies that work with those companies. Um, and again, that makes sense. Again, it's, they're the ones, again, if you talk about sports teams in general, while they're very pervasive in the public consciousness, they're actually relatively speaking smaller businesses, particularly on the team level. 
um, both both in terms of revenue and also in terms of uh, people size and then technology capabilities. Um, so it actually, it, there, there's a reason that a lot of businesses in sports that aren't teams are oriented kind of around the company and the enterprise part of sports is because there are just larger budgets and, and you know, potentially more ability to, um, to commercialize beyond just the teams themselves. So um, that's not atypical for companies that have started in the sports industry and have a sports focus is to start to work out, you know, outside of the sports industry, either in things that are directly related or uh, adjacent to the industry as a whole. That's awesome. And then, you know, before we go, how would you say that you and your clients have evolved the most in the current setting of 2020? Yeah, I think it's um, one of the things I think, again, whether it's an evolution or, you know, obviously a core part of our business is, you know, there is the idea of company specific valuations and how does this impact uh, what we're doing. One of the things that, you know, is, is, is a key component of the discussions, particularly if you're just purely focused on the sponsorship industry is the concept of make goods. So if there are no fans in the stands and a lot of our, our activations are centered around fans coming to venues, literally either through signage or corporate hospitality, what does a make good mean? And how do I determine what a make good is? You know, one of the most, one of the things that I've written about um, and others have as well is the NFL tarps. Um, so right now um, the NFL is a way to help um, partners continue to activate um, particularly ones that had in venue activation, their tarps covering seats at venues that, you know, are supposed to be television viewable so that it's rather than fans coming to games, you could see um, these tarps on television. So I, again, I think the idea of does that really work for my business is something that's really critical. Does it work at all? Uh, and does it work in the ways that we think it's going to work? You know, it, it, there's been a language around value with sponsorship valuation that these signs and that you know, signage in general can be more valuable than it really is. And, you know, how do you articulate, is that true? If it's not true, why isn't it true? If it is true, why is it true? But I think the idea and the evolution, again, obviously the evolution of learning in a fair market way, why something's valuable to me has been really helpful. And I think it's been really helpful. And then also being able to, you know, I think the idea of leveraging data, you know, whether it's to understand audiences, like you and I have talked about previously, but, um, I think this idea of really drilling into it so I can say and communicate to stakeholders, this is why this is valuable to our company. Again, I wouldn't say it's an evolution of our business model, but it's definitely an evolution of, uh, particularly on the, uh, uh, if you're talking about, you, you asked before, like what are our ideal customer types? I think that that it was already happening. You can look at what, um, if your listeners um, look at what Anheuser-Busch had done from a moving, and they have made very vocal about moving to a performance-based model in terms of we need to have partnerships that drive performance, which is for them building primarily driving revenue and building brand awareness or building uh, brand engagement. And I think if Anheuser-Busch, which was already doing that, has accelerated that process, it appears um, from uh, with COVID. You know, again, I think, and, and, and the reason I bring that up is that Anheuser-Busch announced that it was pairing back, not its overall spend, but the number of uh, properties that I was going to work with on a, a sponsorship basis. So the idea of like, you know, Anheuser-Busch being one of, if not the largest sport, sport sponsor, um, really taking this approach and analyzing this approach and accelerating their uh, kind of work in this space. Um, you know, I think that's really been something that's been um, uh, much more front and center from a strategic perspective, particularly uh, on both the buy side and sell side, but definitely for the companies that are buying sponsorship. That's great. Well, thank you. I appreciate you coming to contribute today and we will definitely chat soon. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Of course.